Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today we've got Professor Alex Bellamy, who's Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Queensland and also Director of the Asia-Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. He's here to publicise his new book, which will be out in the northern spring with Columbia University Press, and it's, on, it's called Syria Betrayed, War, Atrocities and the Failure of International Diplomacy. So Alex, over to you, we've got about 40 minutes. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks, no thanks everyone for coming and thanks Ian for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be uh, back amongst old friends and to talk about this book. So to put some kind of context around it uh, and the kind of the argument, early last year, the UN Special Envoy for Syria, Ger Pedersen, a former Norwegian diplomat, sat in the Security Council and he said, UN negotiations are the only path to end the conflict in Syria which is kind of surprising because to everybody else involved in the conflict in Syria, by the early um, 2020, UN negotiations were the least likely path by which the conflict was going to be ended, and actually the use of military force was the way in which the conflict was going to be ended. Pretty much every relevant actor still involved was either pursuing or preparing for the use of force to resolve the conflict. So there was a stark contrast between what the UN was saying was going to be needed at the end to end this conflict and what all the actors actually involved in the conflict were pursuing. And in fact, if you look at UN and Western discourse on Syria since 2011, you'll see again and again and again Western and UN leaders saying there are no military solutions. They said it so often, it was almost as if they thought that the more often they repeated it, the more likely it was to become true. And one of the central arguments of the book is that that was never true and that by 2015, at the latest, Everybody seriously involved in the conflict knew that that wasn't true, that there was actually only ever going to be a military solution to the conflict. And some leaders understood that early, particularly Bashar al-Assad, who understood it from almost day one, but also Vladimir Putin and also President Erdogan of Turkey. Also the Gulf Arab states understood it as well and then gave up. But the West and the UN never seemed to really understand what was going on. And this is a kind of a contrast between the views of, sort of earlier people involved in the UN, including a guy called Brian Urquhart, who was one of the kind of grandees of the UN Secretariat, who used to, in fact, take pleasure in describing UN headquarters in New York as the last bastion of Machiavellian politics in the world. And Brian always used to kind of make the point that to get things done in world politics, the UN had to be engaged in power politics. It had to understand power politics, and it had to learn how to play the game of power politics. One of the, kind of the key things in this kind of story of international diplomacy around Syria is that the UN and US didn't understand power politics, didn't play the game of power politics, and ultimately were sidelined to the irrelevance that they are today in Syria. Now, there's kind of three central arguments and then a, a bunch of other things at the end that I kind of threw together. The kind of key central arguments are, firstly, if... The intervention, NATO intervention in Libya shows us the costs of what some people call hubris and the cost of acting too early and going too far. I don't think it does, but that's the kind of common narrative that we have now about Libya. Well, Syria shows the opposite. It shows the much greater costs of too little action and too indecisive action. And to just briefly talk about the costs, you know, you know these figures... Um, somewhere between 470 and 594,000 people killed, between 270 and 300,000 of those civilians, about 7 million people displaced. To, to put that in relative terms, relative to the population, those are losses similar to Bosnia. 
In absolute terms, those are losses five to six times greater than Bosnia. So those are the losses that we're, we're talking about. The second kind of key theme running through it, I've already kind of alluded to, is that power and power politics matters. That I think too much in the study of, of human protection, R2P and the rest, we kind of take the power politics out and treat these things as entirely kind of humanitarian or human rights based issues. But ultimately, you can only advance humanitarian and human rights issues if you're engaging in, in power politics, particularly in difficult cases like Syria. And then the third kind of central argument, which is the argument that runs through the whole thing, which is how do we explain this international failure in Syria? The, the kind of key argument is that the bottom line is that at no stage in the crisis were the protection of Syrians anybody's priority. No actor at any stage prioritised the protection of Syrians from atrocity crimes. There are always other priorities judged more important. As John Bolton put it, and I don't often like quoting John Bolton and saying John Bolton's right, but I think he was right when he said that to us in the Trump administration, Syria was a strategic sideshow. And I think he wasn't just speaking about the Trump administration, but the Obama administration and pretty much every other administration too. Now, there's lots of different ways of, of telling this story. And I was just saying that you know, one of the challenges of this book has been that it's become quite long. And so that's why it's taking quite a while to finish. And there's, there's, there's a kind of, there was a theoretical way of telling this story, talking about norms as an R2P-focused way. There are dozens of actors and states involved, which is partly one of the reasons why the book is so long. So what I thought I'd do in this talk, given this is GAI, was to cut out the theory, because there isn't actually much of it in the book, and focus on telling the story. But I'm going to do it just by focusing on three key actors, the US, Russia, and Turkey, and just by talking about four kind of key moments or turning points. And I may chop a couple of those out if I start <laughs> running out of time. And those would be the sort of starting positions in the first 18 months, which I think sets most of the core policies and strategies in train. And one of the arguments I'm going to make is that, for example, US policy on Syria was set by the end of 2011 and basically didn't change right the way through. I'm going to talk about a little bit about the chemical weapons issue in 2013-14, but I might skip that if we're running out of time because that's kind of well, well known. Briefly talk about the impact of the rise of ISIS and then focus on what I call the Russian endgame, which sort of starts with Russian intervention and goes through to today, the fact that that endgame is, is, has gone on for more than five years and is still going on, telling you that even the Russians have not been as effective as they might have wanted to have been in, in getting things their own way. So I'll see how, how we go. And I, so I might cut out the middle two bits and just say you know, everything changed with ISIS. So if you remember back to the, sort of, the days of 2011, the, the hopeful days of the Arab Spring, we had, of course, Tunisia, and then the protests in Tahrir Square, and then protests erupt in Syria, and, of course, the situation in Libya. And it's one of the things to, to bear in mind when we think about Libya is that the Libya intervention is going on simultaneously with the development of these opening positions on Syria. And a lot of the, you know, the IR literature, we tend to chop up cases and do them one by one, which then creates the false impression that they were occurring one by one whereas actually they were occurring simultaneously. And of course, when we're looking at Western policy on Syria in particular, one of the things to bear in mind is that the crises in Tunisia, Egypt, Syria, Bahrain, and Yemen are all happening at the same time. So there's limited 
bandwidth to be dealing with them because the whole region is in flux. So what's the Obama administration's sort of starting position? Well, there's a tension right at the beginning. On the one hand, Obama has come into power promising to withdraw from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, using his own folksy charm. You know, if there was an Obama doctrine at this point, it was don't do stupid shit, by which he meant don't get entangled in new commitments, especially in the Middle East. And in Obama's own work and in that of the people closest to him, it's really clear that the lessons of Vietnam are hanging, hanging large in the way he sees the world. He's worried that even the first small steps into a conflict like Syria will wind up in a sort of multi-decade long Vietnam sort of commitment. So this fear of a creeping intervention is something hanging over Obama. And he's also got this position that he wants to get the US out of its war on terror um, struggles in the Middle East, not into more of them. And then, of course, there's the Obama doctrine, if you, if you like, this kind of view, financially, through the kind of rational use of kind of argument, persuasion, dialogue, you can solve most of the world's problems. So we see this with you know, the Iran deal, we see it on, on Cuba, and we see this in the early trying to reset the US relationship with the Middle East. So the famous Cairo speech where Obama says, look, in the past we've traded with authoritarian leaders and dictators, and now we're not going to do that. We're going to spend more time on the people and work through multilateral channels. What all this means for the position on Syria is that in the years running up to 2011, the, the Obama administration is actually trying to reach out to the Syrian government. It thinks that it can wean Bashar al-Assad, who it thinks is actually a reformist at heart, away from Iran. And they think they can use that pivot to basically kickstart the Middle East peace process by drawing Syria away from Iran. The other thing, of course, that's going on, and you will all know better than me, is that the Obama administration is primarily focused on its domestic agenda, not foreign policy. So overall, the way the administration is directing its efforts is more focused on domestic than international. And there's a concern that what's going on in the Middle East could actually disrupt some of the things they've got planned domestically. But, so you've got caution, a, a, a view of caution on one hand, but on the other hand, you've got elements pulling the other way in the Obama administration. In particular, as I've already mentioned, the Cairo speech. You've also got people like Samantha Power, Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton who are pushing a much stronger human rights agenda. And you've also got a concern expressed very early on by, by Clinton that if you allow conflict, particularly in Syria, to escalate, you're going to end up with some sort of failed state and a power vacuum, and into that vacuum will come jihadists and other extremists. And you, just to backtrack a second, we've also got to remember that there's a history between the US and Syria in connection to Iraq, which is that Syria was the principal route by which foreign jihadists came into Iraq to take on the Americans, with the help of the Assad government. So you've got this tension in the US from the get-go. What that produces is a kind of graduated policy through 2011-2012, which kind of starts by sharply distinguishing policy on Libya from policy on Syria. And so you have Clinton and Obama saying, you know, Assad is no Gaddafi, he's a reformer at heart, we can kind of negotiate, let's pedal softly. Coupled with an assessment, an early assessment that unlike Gaddafi and Mubarak, Assad was well entrenched, he was not going to fall easily. So you had this view that maybe if we just kind of steadily increase pressure, we can encourage Assad to reform. An early problem in that approach is that right from the get-go, 
the Russians block the multilateral route through the UN. So the idea that you might use the Security Council to increase pressure maybe with condemnation and then targeted sanctions gets blocked very early on when the Russians say we're not going down any routes at all on Syria. So what you get is a kind of a bilateral escalation of pressure, targeted sanctions and an arms embargo. But these aren't very effective precisely because in the decades before the US-Syria relationship has not been good, there have been sanctions so Syria isn't getting its arms from the U.S. It's not trading with the U.S. So the U.S. leverage over Syria is tiny. So there's this question of, well, what do we do then? Well, now, now we're seeing that leverage isn't working. And that's when you get the move in August 2011 for Obama to say Assad should step aside. Now, what Obama is not saying is we're going to bring about regime change. What he's doing is he's calling on Assad to step down, as he had done earlier, of course, with Mubarak. And then Mubarak had to step aside. Stepped aside. And there's a lot in the literature that says, oh, well, this shows the Americans thought that Assad's fall was inevitable and they were misjudging the situation. But that's not actually what the, uh, what the people inside the administration were thinking. They were thinking, actually, we've run out of options. We're on this kind of escalator of pressure, but we're running out of pressure points. This is something we can do. Let's see if it has any effect. In the context as well that multilateral options are blocked. This sets the basic US position for the rest of the crisis, and it never changed. And that US position is not one of regime change. It is that we can apply sufficient pressure to force Assad to negotiate a political transition. Why doesn't the US want to bring about regime change? Because it's worried, as I've already mentioned, coming from Clinton, it's worried that regime change will create instability, rise of jihadism, and a civil war in Syria that it wants to avoid. It believes also that it can apply just enough pressure on Assad to get him to negotiate. And that remains the position right the way through to today. But from that point on, this belief was always fundamentally flawed. It was based on a fundamentally flawed understanding of the Assad government's position. There are four reasons why. First was that Assad and his inner group always saw the war as being existential. That for them to lose meant not just losing power, but they thought literally their extermination. So losing or transitioning out of power was for them simply not an option. So a famous slogan that we heard pro-Assadists chant again and again and again was Assad or we burn the country. In the West we thought, oh, that's a nice bit of rhetoric. What we didn't seem to understand is that that was actually the strategic position. This is what we're going to do. We either get Assad or we're going to flatten everything until we get to keep us out. The second flaw was that it ignored the fact that the whole state hinges on sort of personal relationships with Assad at the core. So the Syrian state has the, kind of the Alawites at its core, and then an outer core of Sunni allies, all of whom are linked together by personal ties with Assad himself, a system created by his father precisely to prevent um, future coups. Syria before Hafez al-Assad had been rather prone to coups. He built a system prefaced on personal ties to prevent that from happening. What that meant was you can't remove Assad and not have the state collapse. Because Assad and his inner core are the state. They are literally the only thing holding all these different interests together. Which is why even the Alawite inner core, 
when it would have been easier at times to say, actually, let's just get some other one. Let's get rid of Assad and get another trusted person in. Why they, why they didn't do that. The third thing is, of course, Assad knew from day one that he had the support of Iran and Hezbollah. So for as much as the pressure escalated from outside, he could call on his friends, particularly Iran and Hezbollah, to escalate their support as well. And just to give you a sense of the scale of that support, by 2018, the UN estimates that Iran was pouring in $6 billion a year to the Syrian war effort, and there were more than 100,000 Iranian-backed foreign militia inside Syria. So that's mostly militia from Iraqi armed groups backed by and organized by Iran, but also Iranian armed forces as well. To put that in context, that's twice as many as the entire size of the Syrian army at that point. And of course, from 2014-15, Assad knew he could also count on Russian support as well, though early on that was a little uncertain. So the effect was right from the very beginning to create a huge gap between expectations and reality. The US had this ambitious goal of political transition in Syria, yet the means it was prepared to achieve that goal simply couldn't achieve that goal. So you had a gap between what the US said it was trying to do and what it was prepared to commit to it. But of course this is the US, so when the US says we're pursuing political transition, people tend to believe, well, that's what's going to happen, particularly in the Middle East, because in the Middle East, generally where the US says some political leader isn't going to stay there for very long, they don't. Either the US itself invades, like Iraq 2003, or the military pulls the rug under them and forces them out, like Mubarak at the start of 2011. So again, by making this move, the US creates expectations, but expectations it was never committed to seeing fulfilled. So I'll quickly do the Turkish and Russian starting positions. So how does Turkey see things in 2011? You have there, of course, the Erdogan government, you still have there, that has, in its first years, of course, pursued a strident pro-European approach and have been rebuffed at every corner uh, in its attempts to join the EU. And so with the kind of skeleton diplomat foreign minister, uh, Diva Toglu, they were starting to develop a new foreign policy based on what some people call a neo-Ottoman, and sometimes Erdogan has mentioned that himself. So a kind of eastward-looking foreign policy, sometimes called zero problems with neighbours, which sounds kind of a bit Chinese. Um, but where the idea was that, look, here in Turkey you had a sunny majority state that was a democracy and whose economy was booming. So this could be a model and a leader for the Middle East, and Turkey could be a sort of a bridge between the East and the West. So this is how... Turkey is seeing its foreign policy at the time. As part of that, like the Obama administration, the Turkish administration had also been cozying up to the Assads for fairly similar sorts of reasons. In fact, Erdogan and the Assad family had gone on holiday a few times to Bodrum. You know, there are photos of them in their um, you know, Tony Abbott-style attire. So there's a personal bond there. And of course, you've also got the Kurdish question. And again, one of the things that gets missed today because of all that's happened is that back in 2011, Erdogan was um, championing a peace process with the Kurds. There had been years of private negotiations in Oslo, and from 2011, those were starting to take shape. There had been a, a fairly lasting ceasefire, and there were moves towards moving towards a more formal political agreement. And Erdogan had actually staked a lot of his political um, credibility on the peace process with the Kurds. So he's looking at the situation in Syria, and he's drawing similar conclusions to Obama. He thinks Assad at heart is a reformist. He also thinks, hey, you know, we've butted up in Bodrum a few times. We've gone surfing. All that needs to happen is I need to fly to Damascus and say, hey, Bashar, 
you know, stop shooting people, bring about political reforms, and you can be kind of like us, and that'll be all kind of cool. Of course, that doesn't work. You know, he flies to, they shake hands, Bashar goes, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And by the time Erdogan's got home, he's looking at news reports of tanks on the streets and uh, civilians getting shot again. So Ankara switches very quickly from a position of, let's try and moderate with Syria to, we need regime change. And Turkey's position is regime change. Assad has to go and has to go by the use of military force. Why does it do that? Well, personally, with authoritarian governments like Turkey was becoming, and, and Syria was, you can't underplay the role of kind of personalities. There is no doubt that Erdogan himself was humiliated and affronted by the fact that his holiday buddy had so obviously affronted him. And so that's a big thing. Second thing is, of course, you've got Obama saying Assad should step aside. So Erdogan kind of calculates, well, this is going to happen sooner or later. The Americans are going to get involved, so let's get in on this. And the third thing being, if we get in on this from the front we're more likely to be able to influence what happens after regime change in Syria. So that's Turkey. What's going on in Moscow? Well, things are looking quite different in Moscow. First thing you've got to remember with Moscow is at the moment, at 2011, we're talking about Dmitry Medvedev, not Vladimir Putin. Putin is pulling some of the strings on things that he cares about, but he's, he's not controlling things, and there are different worldviews there, which means that Moscow's position is going to harden, and everyone knows it's going to harden once Putin comes back. Russia sees the problem differently to how everyone else sees it. Russia doesn't see what's going on in Syria as a human rights issue, as a democracy issue. It sees it squarely as a national security problem. It sees the whole of the Arab Spring as basically a front for jihadism. You know, all this pro-democracy stuff is just a front for the real agenda, which is jihadism. And you see them say this very, very publicly. So after Benghazi, you know, you get the Russian Lavrov saying, you know, the Americans, we told you what was going to happen. We, we should be on the same side here. This is just jihadism. This has nothing to do with democracy. They worry that should the regime collapse in Syria, that will strengthen jihadism and also provide a bulwark for it to attack into the southern Caucasus. So Russia is very much as well looking at the maps and seeing, well, strengthening jihadism in Syria poses a direct national security problem for us. It's also, of course, getting really nervous about the colour of revolutions. Again, you see the world from Moscow, you see Serbia, you see Georgia, you see Ukraine, you see Tunisia, you see Egypt, you see Syria, and you go, heck, is Moscow going to be next? And, and again, you can't underestimate the fact that they're seeing a pattern here that all, you know, however much we try and dismiss the idea that the CIA is behind everything, there is no dismissing the fact that the Kremlin certainly thinks that that is a credible possibility and it could come and affect them. They're a little bit concerned about UN Security Council interventionism, so Libya and the others. There's a lot of literature on that. I think that's less of a pressing concern than the literature suggests, largely because the Russians know they've got a veto in the UN Security Council so they can block things they don't like. And they also, I don't think, have the sense that Obama is a kind of gun-toting interventionist George W. star. And, of course, they're concerned to protect an ally. So, you know, Russia's numbers of reliable allies is declining. So making a point of protecting one of the few remaining allies they have in the Middle East is something they want to go. And the other thing with domestic politics is we've got to bear in mind that the pro-Assad stance plays very well domestically. It's hugely popular amongst the Russian public, and the church, the Orthodox Church, is very much behind a pro-Assad policy. So the Russian position set in 2011, basically stays the same throughout, which is that there will need to be some sort of negotiated settlement. 
they understand that you know, Assad has lost 60 to 70% of the population. There will need to be some sort of negotiated settlement, but it must be a settlement that Assad is comfortable with. It can't be something imposed on him, because if it's something imposed, that will lead to state collapse and fragility. So the Russians look early on like they're kind of potentially open to even to regime change so long as Assad agrees. And that's the, the key sticking point. So let's spin on. So we have the Arab League plan. That fails. We have the Anand plan. That fails too. I'll just briefly dwell on the Anand plan and then we'll kind of skip to more, more, more recent things. Because, because the Anand plan really is the sort of last moment where you could have had something go a bit differently. So Anand's view, when he's appointed as UN Special Envoy, is first of all, we need to get the big powers to agree to something. If, if they're not agreeing on what the basic outline of Syria's future is going to look like, they're not going to put pressure on the players in Syria, and the whole thing is going to collapse. So he first of all gets them to agree on a series of steps that no right-minded person could disagree with. That's his kind of logic, and it's... Ceasefire, tanks off the street, armed opposition off the street, let's start releasing some political prisoners, and then let's have a political dialogue. Who could disagree with that? And his logic is that once you, his hope, I would say, is once you get that, you then start to build, you dampen violence, you give the opposition, in a sense, back to the peaceful protesters, because they can go back on the street and protest peacefully, and you take the wind out of those that are arming, and you create a basis of trust on which you can then start to nut out the political issues. Everyone agrees. There's a string of Security Council resolutions supporting it. The Security Council also agrees to send a UN mission to go and supervise the ceasefire. But no sooner do they get there than it all starts breaking down. Why does it break down? Well, firstly, go back to where we started right at the very beginning. Bashar al-Assad has no interest in sharing power. So he doesn't want a deal that's going to end up with a political transition. At the same time, the Syrian opposition is also not too keen on compromise. They've kind of like, well, we've got Obama saying Assad should go. We've got momentum on our side. Why should we offer some sort of compromise for example, a transitional government in which Assad is still part. There's no need to do that. We can take a hard line. Underlying this is, of course, the fact that Anand has sidestepped rather than tackled those core political problems. And then you've also got kind of logistical problems with the UN mission. It's a small mission. It can't get out and about. It can't do very much verifying of the ceasefire. So things start to collapse. Then it, Anand says, I can't do this anymore. The UN monitors pull out. It comes back to the Security Council, and the West says... If this deal is going to stick, we need a resolution that threatens consequences for those that don't abide by the ceasefire, i.e. sanctions. Russia says no, out comes the veto, and that's it all collapsed. So that's the kind of the UN process gone. The UN process carries on with people like Brahimi, Di Mistura, and then Pedersen. But from then on, it's really a sideshow. No one is kind of investing too much effort in it. It becomes part of the Russian endgame momentarily but it's not the main game. We've then got the whole chemical weapons thing, 2013-14. I won't go through the details of what happened because I'm really running out of time. But whatever we think of whether the decision to, to use force or not was right, I think a couple of things are really important to draw from it. Firstly, the Obama administration sees this as a win. Here we are, we are disarming Syria, we're doing it peacefully. This is the Obama doctrine in practice. 
so John Kerry is really ebullient about this. Obama is too. The power of rational diplomacy has been proved. We can persuade the Russians. We can even persuade the Russians to agree to disarm Bashar al-Assad. We can find common ground. It's really good. Um, Vladimir Putin is also pretty happy. Putin has done a deal to avoid what he thought was an inevitable U.S. intervention, which might very well tip things very badly in the wrong direction for him. He's gotten the chemical, chemical weapons out of Syria, which actually he kind of wanted to do anyway for, for two reasons. One, he was worried that if Assad falls, those chemical weapons fall into the hands of jihadists who really don't like Russia. Secondly, he's worried that if Assad keeps using these chemical weapons, it's going to trigger some sort of Western intervention in the future. So better to get them off the table, because it seems like the West is more bothered by people being gassed to death than being pummeled to death by conventional weapons. And the third thing is, this, this whole agreement makes the US and UN dependent on Assad. To deliver their core achievement, they're now dependent on Assad. So they have to come up with all sorts of agreements around creating secure routes for the Syrian government and all the rest of it so that they can get the chemical weapons out. So it's a win for Putin too. Now, the effects of the deal on Syria, again, whether you think that it was the right or wrong course of action, I think we can't get away from the, the very clear effects. The first effect was that actually the deal failed to disarm Assad. He had chemical weapons still, and it failed to deter future use of chemical weapons. It was less than 12 months after the deal that Assad starts using chemical weapons again. Two years later, he's back using the full range, not just chlorine, but sarin too. Secondly, it, the deal had a massive effect on the Syrian opposition. It seriously undercut the moderates, the Free Syrian Army, and the SOC, the Syrian um, Opposition Council, were undercut. They've been hinging a lot on, stay with us, we can get the West involved, we can deliver the political outcome. Everyone, expect, everyone in Syria was expecting US, UK, French airstrikes, to the point that the night before, the army were in bunkers, the Assad family were in bunkers, everyone was expecting the use of force. When it didn't happen, the moderate opposition was completely delegitimized, and the jihadists who said, look, we told you all along you couldn't have trust the West, and they've gone and demonstrated it once again. So there's a turning point. At, at this point, the, the moderate opposition's legitimacy starts to nosedive, and the jihadists start to pick up. Not because everyone suddenly becomes jihadists, but because people go, well, you know, at least these guys do what they say they're going to do, and you know, aren't making deals with countries that are going to sell us down the river eventually. It also alienates some key U.S. allies. So Turkey is feeling really chastened by the U.S. kind of backtracking, as are Saudi Arabia. Israel isn't very chuffed um, either. And the fact that none of them were consulted in advance of Obama's change, of course, was also significant. It also weakens the U.S. US influence. So the U.S. has just set aside its leverage, and so its, its leverage from then on is seriously diminished. And perhaps most importantly of all, if you're Assad, or if you're Iran, or if you're Putin, you're now very, very confident that the West isn't going to intervene. If you're Assad, you're kind of thinking, there is literally nothing I can do to the Syrian people that will draw a Western intervention. So one of the things that happens immediately is the level of violence escalates. So then we have you know, horse jockeying, war escalates. One of the things that's worth mentioning that people often forget is we get the rise of ISIS, largely as a result of what was going on in Iraq. The Syrian opposition launches an offensive against ISIS. Um, for 12 months, the Syrian opposition is conducting this offensive. It's largely effective, which is why ISIS goes on the run in Iraq. So the ISIS um, offensive in Iraq is a direct consequence 
of the fact that they're getting beaten in Syria by the Syrian opposition, including other Islamists in the Syrian opposition, like Jaish al-Islam. But of course, they go off to Iraq. In Iraq, they get American Humvees, they get tons of cash and loads of arms, and they get foreign fighters, and they come back to Syria. And the whole dynamic then of the war changes. The West position now becomes combating ISIS is the issue, not Assad. The Syrian opposition says, says things like, well, ISIS is the symptom. It's the symptom of Assad. We only have ISIS because we have Assad, um, but that doesn't wash with the West. Eventually, you get Russian intervention, and that's uh, kind of the key turning point. Now, why does Russia intervene in, in September 2015? It intervenes because its view is now the same as the West's view that actually, even with that ISIS there, Assad's days are numbered. So one of the things that's happened as a result of the non-use of force on chemical weapons is that the regional powers have gotten, finally gotten their act together and have coalesced the opposition, the mainstream opposition, into two fairly powerful fighting forces, a Turkish-backed uh, force in the north and what's called the Southern Front in the south that's largely orchestrated by Jordan but with the Americans and Israelis helping a little bit too. And these cohered forces suddenly start doing things like rolling over large cities. So Idlib, well, a serious city, is taken within a week. They launch a similar offensive in the south in Dara. It doesn't succeed, but it shows what they're capable of doing. And Russia now judges that Assad's days are numbered. It also judges that there's an opportunity because the West has so obviously vacated the field. It's talked up ISIS so much that Russia can say, well, look, we're intervening against ISIS too. And you all know the story there. Russia intervenes says it's intervening against ISIS, but steadfastly doesn't target ISIS until quite a few months in. It's focused on the moderate mainstream opposition that's posing most of a threat to Assad. But Russia's goal is not to, initially at least, to force Assad to win. Its goal is still to get Assad to a point where he can negotiate. So it's to strengthen Assad, to prevent his regime collapsing, and then have negotiations. And so the Russian strategy at this point is about changing the situation on the battlefield and then having a new political process led possibly by the Russians, which will be favourable to Assad. But basically, the Russian policy mark one is, let's try and do this through the UN. That collapses. Russian policy mark two is, let's get the US. Because if we can get the US to buy into our political deal, that kind of helps us to sell it to the opposition. So you'll remember the whole kind of Lavrov-Kerry bromance that went on for about 18 months that was Mark II. That didn't work either. So then Mark III was let's get the Iranians and Turks together and come up with the Sochi, the Astana Sochi plan. And this was the idea of getting them in as co-guarantors. Russia would deliver Assad, Turkey would deliver the opposition, and you'd have a process whereby you'd first of all have de-escalation in some core zones, then negotiations and a, and a political deal. Well, that didn't work either because they couldn't get to the political deal. And Turkey was also a bit more awkward and intransigent on some things also prepared to compromise, particularly you know, there's a series of deals between Erdogan and Putin where Erdogan trades away the de-escalation zones in return for Putin green-lighting Turkish incursions into northern Syria. So you'll remember a series starting with Manbij and then Afrin. All of those were green-lighted by Putin because Putin controls the sky, so he has to control it. And he green-lights those in return for concessions on the other de-escalation zones. The one de-escalation zone, the last one that is a problem though for Erdogan and for Putin is Idlib, the one that's still there. And that's a problem for Erdogan for a number of reasons. One, there's three million civilians there. 
In the last few years, the Turkish economy, which had been booming, has been collapsing, and Turkish sentiment has turned on Syrian refugees. There are about 3 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. If Idlib collapses, that's another 3 million refugees. The other thing is, Erdogan has staked his personal claim on being a guarantor of Idlib. So he has personally guaranteed that Turkey will protect Idlib. Much as, a little known fact, much as the US and Jordan guaranteed the southern zone. Little known fact that the US was a guarantor of the southern zone. When Assad rolled over the southern zone, Trump quickly said, we're not going to defend the southern zone. And, uh, and that was the end of that. So Erdogan has got a lot at, at stake. But the question is, how far is he prepared to push? And then, had I had time, there's like a whole kind of hour or two on really interesting brinkmanship between Putin and Erdogan. Because the two of them understand power politics. They also understand the logics of deterrence and compellence. And they're constantly trying to test that. So Putin assumes ultimately Erdogan will back down. A little bit of force and Erdogan will crumble. Erdogan's not too sure. First of all, he thinks deterrence will work. Then they do sort of uber deterrence and bring in some force to kind of demonstrate that they're really serious. Ultimately, at the start of 2020, he's forced to decide whether or not Turkey's going to use force because basically Assad and Putin have decided that they think he's going to crumble, so let's pull it. And there's an incident where a Turkish convoy is directly targeted um, by, by Syrian and Russian jets. Everyone later agreed it wasn't, the Russians weren't involved, but they obviously were. At that point, Erdogan decides, well, actually, we are going to use force. But he's done it in a, fairly, in a carefully calibrated way where they're using force only against the Syrians and not against the Russians. And the Russians understand this. They also sort of let them. And what happens is basically Putin gives uh, Erdogan a, uh, an invitation, come to Moscow and we'll do a deal. And the, the, the meeting is set for a week after the first Turkish use of force. So what's happening there is t Russia is saying, you've got a week to kind of do what you want to the Syrian army. At that point, we'll do a deal. And, and, and Turkey do do quite a lot of damage, in fact, significant damage um, to the Syrian army, and also demonstrate that their drones are better than the latest Russian anti-aircraft uh, missiles, which is a bit of a shock to the Kremlin and also kind of encourages them to do a deal. So you get, you get the deal. Sorry about whizzing through that way too quickly. What are the kind of key points that I just want to pull out very quickly? And there are um, five of them. The, the first one that you find with this whole story is the importance of contingency. That all the way through, events outside of Syria are impacting on these relationships and dynamics. We have the, the chaos of the initial Arab Spring. We have uh, something I've not mentioned, but underscores all the, the souring of US-Russian relations. They're quite good at the beginning. They sour seriously throughout. So you've obviously got Ukraine. You've also got the uh, use of chemical weapons in Salisbury, which occurs at a, a key moment as well. You've got the overall issue of declining US influence in the Middle East. And you also can't underestimate the importance of the attempted coup in Turkey in 2015 for shifting Turkey away from the Western orbit and towards the Russian orbit. That was really crucial because whilst the West was dithering on how do we respond to this attempted coup, Putin has gotten on the phone to Erdogan and said, hey, we support you, we're on each other's side. And in fact, some reports say it was the Russian intelligence that actually tipped off Erdogan about the, the military jet flying to try and intercept him and maybe execute or arrest him. And that's on the backdrop of 
Prior to that point, Russian-Turkish relations had been really, really sour because of Russian intervention in Syria and the fact Turkey had shot down a Russian aircraft. So contingency really matters. The other thing that really matters, I think, is agency, something we often kind of overlook, particularly in IR theory. All of these decisions could have gone the other way. And Assad could have decided to reform. When he gave his first speech back in June 2011, he didn't have to call the protesters foreign-inspired terrorists. He could have said, I'm on your side. I'm with you. I'm a reformer. Back then, most Syrians were actually looking to Assad to be a reformer. Similarly, you know, Obama could have decided differently. Ed Miliband could not have swapped his, report, his support for British intervention at a cru crucial moment for domestic political reasons. Two other things that are really important is that kind of action-reaction dynamic. And also that patron-client relations, though important, are highly unreliable. The Russians were never able to bring Assad into doing what they wanted Assad to do. And frequently Assad played it the other way, where he would say to the Russians, well, your choice is either you back me, for example, as I roll over Aleppo, or you let me go and I might fall. And ultimately, every time Assad did that, the Russians had to fall into line. The Americans had similar problems with its clients in the Middle East. You know, Saudi Arabia and Qatar did not behave. They spent most of their time competing with each other with disastrous effects for the opposition. The third point I've already mentioned, which is this contending priorities. So at no point in this story was the protection of Syrians the principal objective of any of these, of these powers. The fourth I've already mentioned, which is the role of power politics, which I think is crucial in this story, but is still under-understood under and undervalued in the whole way we think about the politics of, of human protection, civilian protection, RTP, and the rest. And the final thing is, is about the use of force. And this is a kind of a sense that sort of post-Libya and post-Iraq and post-Afghanistan, we've lulled ourselves into this view that force can never be used for good effect. And this is probably, I think, Syria shows an overreaction to those events. And actually, Syria shows that military force remains a major factor driving events in, in conflicts like these. We see the role of deterrence, we see coercion, we see punishment, we see compellence. Ultimately, it's military force that has determined the outcome. Similarly, we see in the story that sometimes military force and the threat of military force did achieve things. Go back to the chemical weapons issue... The one lesson that the West didn't learn was that actually credible threat of force did force Assad and Putin's hand. What then happened is that by removing that threat, a kind of vacuum was created that Putin was only too happy to fill. And from that point, Putin was able to dictate. Once Putin has control of the skies, Putin is able to dictate what's happening in Syria. So force did work. Most recently, of course, with Turkey and Idlib, force did stop and prevent Idlib from collapsing without triggering an all-out war with the Russians. And if we look all the way through, I think there were military options that could have closed that gap that opened up very early between political objectives and the tools being used. One of those that was rejected very early and very forthrightly, I think it, we've got Obama swearing as well, was the idea of a no-fly zone that was suggested by John McCain and supported by, by France and Turkey. But if you wind back and think, well, what would a no-fly zone have achieved? It would have denied, permanently denied the skies to Russia and to the Syrian Air Force. It would have meant the Syrians were incapable of their siege and starvation tactics. They would not have been able to sit around 
Aleppo, Homs, Hamar, and Eastern Ghouta and just hits it from the air because they didn't control the skies. And it may well have been the thing that by pushing the regime close to collapse that could have forced that negotiation or that negotiated transition that the West had so looked for. I'm not saying that I'm confident, you know, that whenever you talk about the use of force, you're always in the world of what-ifs. What I'm saying is there's, there's grounds to think that there were military and other sorts of options that could have closed that gap, but that weren't tried. Thanks. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.